Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and today we are absolutely delighted to have with us one of the true pioneers in integrative medicine who's been at this for probably 50 years or so and has one of the finest pedigrees in integrative medicine and that of course is Dr. Andrew Weil. So welcome and thank you for joining us Dr. Weil. Thank you Dr. Mercola, pleasure to be here. All right, so I'm just so excited to connect with you finally. And uh, you went to Harvard as an undergrad and grad student, uh, or med medical school. So I'm wondering what, and I think you took a tour somewhere in there. Was it after high school or before medical uh, undergrad where you between went to Thailand? School, between high school and college, I went, went around, actually around the world with a student group. We got to live with native families in many countries for eight and a half months. Wow, so did, was that part of the inspiration that motivated you to go to, to, go into medicine? <clears throat> That's, that's a long story. Uh, I was always interested in science and biology. I had a family doctor, a general practitioner, growing up in Philadelphia who mentored me and gently pushed me toward medicine. Uh, I never thought I wanted to be a doctor. I thought I wanted a medical education, and I also had an idea that a medical degree would be useful to me, um, which it certainly has been. Uh, I have a lifelong interest in plants, something I got from my mother that she got from her mother. That led me to be a, a botany major at Harvard as an undergraduate and started me on a career interest in medicinal plants. Uh, I've long been fascinated by mind-body interactions. I began looking at and studying alternative medicine when I was in college. So a lot of different roots there that led to this, led to where I am now. And you actually did a fellowship with the National Institutes of Health after uh, graduating medical school. Is that right? I spent a year with them. Um, and I also did a fellowship with a, an institution called the Institute of Current World Affairs that sent me, uh, allowed me to travel around mostly in Latin America, some in Africa, collecting information on medicinal plants and traditional healing. What were some of the most exciting uh, discoveries you made or, or items that you learned in the, the, that journey? Well, you know, what's ironic is that uh, I chased around the world looking for healers and to see what I could learn because I had really felt that uh, what I had learned in conventional medicine wasn't going to serve me. I saw it do too much harm and it really didn't teach me to keep people healthy. And the irony is that when I finished that and landed back in Tucson, it turned out that the person who had most to teach me had been here all along, and that was Dr. Robert Fulford. Uh, uh, a DO. He was a DO. He was then in his 80s and a master of cranial therapy. Um, and he really made me aware of the healing power of nature. Um, I am an enormous fan of uh, osteopathic manipulation um, and cranial therapy. I recommend that a lot, and I hope more DOs will come back and uh, practice manipulation. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I'm trained as an osteopathic physician. I know. And uh, it's a, so having gone through their process, I can confidently tell you that a very small percentage are actually skilled in just yeah, regular placements, let alone cranial, which is a whole other level of right. uh, skill sets. Yeah, but that's such a valuable uh, yeah. method. So do you practice it yourself? I don't. Uh, I'm not trained in it, but I refer patients frequently to it. I wish there were more practitioners around. So one of your, so it, it you know, the, great, we've got uh, cranial sacral therapy as a, as, a, as a good tool, but it seems a big part of your focus, aside from botanical medicine, would be, I guess, applying strategies to use the mind to uh, uh, catalyze healing. 
As I said, I, I have a long fascination with that. And uh, after, uh, I think it was after I finished uh, my internship, I took a course for physicians at Columbia University in medical hypnosis. That's one of the most interesting courses that I ever took. Uh, and as a result of that, I also make frequent referrals to uh, hypnotherapists. Uh, I have again and again seen how changes in the mental realm initiate healing or changes in the physical realm. And, and uh, to me, that's one of the great limitations of the dominant scientific and medical paradigm, which only looks at the physical as being real and uh, believes that if you have changes in the physical system, uh, the causes have to be physical. You know, non-physical causation of physical events is not allowed for. Um, so that's, I think, a major thing that integrative medicine tries to change. Yes, indeed. And you've certainly been a pioneer in that. And you've written quite a few books, actually. I think your first one was in the 70s. Uh, spot, was it spontaneous? No, the first one was The Natural Mind. That Natural was Mind, that was it. That's too, it. About yeah. drugs and altered states of consciousness. Uh, I didn't begin writing about uh, health and medicine until the uh, 1980s. Okay. So you, when you were at Harvard as an undergrad, were you the editor of the newspaper, the Harvard Crimson? I was an editor. We had many editors. Okay. I was one of them. Okay. Did, did that catalyze your interest in writing or? Absolutely. I, I really learned my writing skills as a journalist, having to write frequently and edit other people's writing and having my own writing edited. Uh, so that's been a great asset to me to be able to write. So you've written a large number of books, at least 15 or so. And yeah. I'm wondering... Which, and many of them were bestsellers, I'm wondering which one is the favorite book that you've written? <laughs> well, I, I love The Natural Mind and the one that followed it called The Marriage of the Sun and Moon, which was about my travels in, in uh, Latin America. Um, the first book that I wrote about health uh, was called Health and Healing, and it really states the philosophy that became integrative medicine. Interesting. So... Uh... I guess what are the, uh, so can you elaborate more on your journeys? Sure. <laughs> that I think sounds like a fascinating story. In fact, your, your life is so full of stories that I, <laughs> I think you provide a really great example of why it's so important to keep people at your age and older alive because there's so much wisdom to share. <laughs> you know, I, I'm done writing books. I've written enough books. Oh, seriously. really? Okay. But, but what I am doing now, I'm writing up stories from my life. And okay. this is, so it's not an autobiography, not memoirs, just random stories. I think you will enjoy it when, when it's out there. Um, you know, after I finished all these travels, uh, my car broke down in Tucson, and it took six weeks to get fixed. Uh, it was a wet February. The desert was in full bloom, and I never left. I, I never imagined I would live in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, the University of Arizona found out that I was here and asked me to talk to medical students. Um, so I enjoyed teaching. I never imagined that I could change anything about those, that institution. Medicine seemed very frozen and uh, not open to change. I was drawn into practice. Um, what I called what I did was natural and preventive medicine. I later came to call that integrative medicine uh, for a long time through this. Yeah. Did you actually coin that term? If I didn't, I'm the one who popularized it. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Okay. All right. And, and, uh, 
what I was going to say was that I, I gradually found myself being drawn into practice. People who had heard me or, or read my writings began showing up at my doorstep. And I was reluctant to practice because I didn't know that I was really good at anything. It took me a while to discover that I was good at two things. One is diagnosis, which I do mainly by listening to people. Uh, I had many teachers who said that if you ask the right questions, patients will make the diagnosis for you in their own words. I have found that to be true, but that assumes that you know how to ask questions, that you know how to listen, and you have time to do that. And uh, I also found that I was good at being what I call a therapeutic matchmaker. I, I know who goes with whom, whether that's within conventional medicine or outside of it. And I found that people wanted that kind of service. So I was gradually drawn to practice. I had a larger and larger following in the general public, but none of my medical colleagues paid any attention to me. And that was true way up into the 1990s. And it was only then that I found that medical institutions began to open to what I was saying. And I think that was because that was when the economics of healthcare began to go south. So it was only when the pocketbooks of institutions began to be squeezed that they began to listen to what patients had been demanding. Yeah, there seems to be, uh, well, we, we both know and understand at a fundamental level that uh, the information we have is really the solution to the yes. desperate uh, problems and complications of chronic disease, disease that our country has, and yeah. conventional medicine is not going to address it. So, what what is your guess, best guess as to the best way to have uh, the conventional physicians embrace these strategies? Well, my focus has been on training physicians and allied health professionals through the University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. We are we have a a two-year intensive fellowship. Uh, we've now had 1,800 people graduate from that. So these are highly trained physicians in practice in all states. Many of them are now training other people. We also have a curriculum in integrative medicine that's in residency training that's now been adopted by 70-some residency programs around the country. So, so I think that's one way to change things is by yeah. training the education of professionals. Yeah, but even so, at that 1,800, you're still way less than... It's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, it's a half a percent of physicians. And how, how many of those residency programs are you graduating a year? How many residents? Well, there's, residency programs are relatively small, so it may be you know, anywhere from four to eight uh, okay. residents, so not large numbers. But I think for things to change, there has to be a grassroots social political movement in this country in which enough people get angry enough about the way things are and we begin electing different kinds of representatives who do not are not beholden to the vested interests that now want the system to go on as it is yeah it seems that the vested interest is really what's blocking the implementation of these strategies because you know they're able to essentially effectively lobby the politicians to not embrace these approaches so do you think that there's a, you know, my, my thought is that we almost need a collapse where there's right. a financial collapse. We don't have any resources. We really have to get down to the fundamental basics because there isn't any other choice and almost like an alcoholic in the gutter. Yeah. We may have to have a total crash of the healthcare system for things to change. Uh, every graduating class of our fellows, I, I say you, you are the ones that could start this movement in the country. Uh, 
you know, doctors should be marching in the streets demanding change. They are being, they're victims of this system. And as dysfunctional as our healthcare system is, it's generating rivers of money. And that money is flowing into very few pockets. And they are the vested interests who have total control of our representatives. Yeah, that is definitely an issue. So, um, you know, I, I, I watched your interview on with Joe Rogan, which was really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's an interesting character. Totally. <laughs> I had fun with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It looks like you had a good time. Yeah. So from that, I, I learned a little bit about what you're, you're eating. You're definitely not a vegetarian. You're a pescatarian. A pescatarian or a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> so you eat fish and a lot of good healthy vegetables, most of which you grow yourself. A, a lot of which I grow myself and food that comes fresh out of the garden tastes incredible. Yes. So I'm wondering why you uh, haven't integrated eggs into that equation because there's many pescatarians who do. You know, when I travel, I eat eggs. Uh, but at home, I, do, I generally don't. I, for one reason or another, they don't appeal to me. But when I'm on the road, often I eat eggs. Uh, when I'm traveling in other countries, I do because it makes things easier. I have nothing against them. Are you seeing patients now? Not actively now. I see a select few. I okay. mostly teach. And uh, so what's your travel schedule look like? <laughs> I just got back from a month in Asia, which was a very tough uh, travel schedule, but I learned a lot. Ended up in Japan, which is one of my favorite countries where I get to eat wonderful food. Um, learned a lot. I, I, I may have a business uh, uh, in matcha tea. Uh, I don't know whether you're a fan of that, but I, I think it's... No, we, we've been selling on our site for a long time. Great. So I have a company called Matcha. It's matcha.com. Uh, we source the tea from uh, a company in Kyoto. I was just there looking at their tea fields and factories. I love matcha. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a great drink. And as to fish, I know you're friends with uh, Randy Hartnell. Uh, oh, yeah. Choice. I'm a big fan of their products, uh, especially the Ikura, the salmon. Uh, oh yeah, you, 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 unless you're good friends with Randy, you can't get those. Thanks to, <laughs> exactly. thanks to Ron DePatrick, who, who blurted out the secret during uh -huh. her pregnancy. So um, I, haven't right, had, I heard that. I heard that one. Yeah, I haven't had salmon roe for a, a year, thanks to Rhonda. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> well, I just got some, and I love it. But I'm oh. a big fan of their uh, wild, wild fish products. Yeah, it's probably one of the. That truly is one of the finest superfoods on the planet because uh, it's just. There's nothing better. It's a fish egg. <laughs> Absolutely. All those, those tremendous phospholipids in there. Yeah. So um, one of your strategies, I attended one of your presentations at the Expo West one year, mm -hmm. and, and I heard, actually did a, a summary of it and uh, put, put a, a summary of those recommendations and we put it, posted an article on it many years ago, was your breathing technique. Mm -hmm. So is that still a strategy you use and incorporate? I teach that whenever I get the chance and I've done it with all my patients. I teach it to all our fellows. Uh, I do it with friends. This is the four, seven, eight breath. You can look it up. It's all, it's easily accessed. It's breathing in through your nose to a count of four, holding your breath for a count of seven, blowing air out to your through your mouth for a count of eight and doing this for four or eight breath cycles, practicing it regularly. It, it is a, master key to changing the involuntary nervous system. And of all the remedies that I've given to patients over the years, the one that I've gotten the most positive feedback about is that simple technique. It costs nothing, uses no equipment, takes very little time. Uh, and 
medical doctors don't take it seriously because they, how can anything so simple change anything in the body? There's no drug, there's no device. So there's very little research on breathing. People just don't take it seriously. Do you, is this a practice you do daily yourself? Absolutely. I do it uh, at least twice a day when I wake up and when I go to sleep and any time during the day that I you know, feel that I want to do it. Okay. By the I'll, way, can I, can I tell you something about it? I, I, sure. uh, one result that I've seen in myself, um, I have a very low heart rate, which is now, you know, it's usually uh, in the low 40s, sometimes in the wow. high 40s. And I'm not a fanatical exerciser. I mean, I, I exercise regularly, mostly swim and walk. But up until maybe 20 years ago, my heart rate was around 70, which is what most mm. people have. And I, the only way I can think that this has changed is through doing that breathing exercise regularly. And do you think it's improved your parasympathetic nervous system? Absolutely. I mean, that's, I think that I've improved vagal tone, which is why my heart rate is low. I have very warm hands most of the time. And I think, you know, this is an activation of the relaxation response. And it's one of the great uh, rewards of doing that kind of breathing practice. Yeah. Is it, is it Benson out of Harvard? Yes, which, exactly. Right. Did that research. Yeah. So uh, that's a good strategy. I think I, that's a, if that isn't a powerful motivation, because we, because we know that that when you activate the parasympathetic nervous system, you also improve your heart rate variability, which is a really good tool. Totally. And digestion to improves. The yeah. digestion improves, circulation improves, blood pressure is lowered. It has everything to recommend it. So, you know, what another component that really impressed me um, about your presentation with Joe is your mental acuity. Normally, as you're, you're 78 years old now. And not quite. Don't rush me out. Okay, all right, 77. 77 in June. Okay, seven, I, I, sorry. Sorry about that. I did my math wrong. Yeah, but you, you, your mental acuity for someone your age is truly remarkable. I, it doesn't seem to have changed ever since from when you were younger. Yeah. And so you've got to be doing something right. I mean, obviously, your diet is pretty tuned in and you're exercising. Uh, and and the breathing pattern. Do you attribute any other strategies you have to? I, I think I get good rest and sleep. Mm -hmm. um, I I use supplements wisely. I'm a great believer in the uh, power of mushrooms, uh, and I take a number of mushroom products that I think uh, uh, are are helpful both mentally and physically. Uh, I eat a lot of fermented foods, and and you know there's increasing research on the connection between the microbiome and mental emotional well-being. So I think that's another strategy. I spend time with people who are active and happy and positive, and I think that's a great strategy as well. I have uh, two companion animals, two wonderful dogs that I spend a lot of time with. Uh, I think I attribute a lot of my well-being to them as well. Interesting. And is your interest in, are you connected with Paul Stamets? We're very good friends. And actually, I'm the one who turned him on to medicinal mushrooms. Ah. <laughs> so when did, you, when did you start your journey with mushrooms? I went to Oregon. I moved to Oregon for a while in uh, 1973, 74. And I, that was the first time I was around people who collected wild mushrooms. And by spending time with them, I began to learn about food mushrooms. This was also a time when people were becoming interested in uh, psychoactive mushrooms, magic mushrooms. But I had been studying Chinese medical theory, and I was very struck by the fact that in uh, Chinese medicine, mushrooms are 
highly esteemed as remedies. And yet in the West, no attention was being paid to them. The standard thought here is that mushrooms have no nutritional value and they're likely to be harm, harmful rather than beneficial. Um, and I, I was just interested that there was such lack of interest. Also, I made trips to Japan and China and met scientists who were studying the anti-cancer and immune modulating effects of mushrooms. So I told Paul Stamets about this and said that I thought this was an area that really should be taken seriously. And it's been wonderful to watch the awakening of research interest in that subject here. Yeah, there's so much potential there. Are, there, are there any specific mushrooms that you find that, that are your favorites to take regularly? Uh, one is turkey tail. Uh, this is a, a common mushroom you see in the woods, uh, one of these little thin shelf fungi. There's a very good database for its cancer protective effects, both preventatively and therapeutically. Another one is lion's mane. Um, this is an edible mushroom that's sometimes sold as a gourmet mushroom. It looks like a white pom-pom. And it has a nerve growth factor in it that's quite unique. And uh, this is something that I recommend to people with neuropathy. Uh, but there's also, uh, I think, beginning to be good data on its uh, potential for improving cognitive function. And uh, that's one that I like very much. Excellent. Do you now? Uh, I was in Austin last year at Paleo FX and uh, only ate out uh, once. I rarely eat at a restaurant, but yeah, had the opportunity to eat at a true North restaurant <laughs> true, in Austin. True, true food kitchen. Oh, true, true, true food. True, is it true food? Oh, it's true food. True, true food kitchen. Okay, sorry about that. I got the names mixed up. True <laughs> food. So, uh, is the, in to so me, you can. I want you to tell us about that, and I'm wondering if you use your mushrooms in those uh, in those restaurants. Uh, this has been a fun ride for me. I'm a very good home cook. I'm not a chef. But over the years, many people have said you ought to open a restaurant. I was never tempted to do that because I know nothing about the restaurant business and it looked like a very tough business. But about 11 years ago, a mutual friend introduced me to a very successful restaurateur uh, in Arizona named Sam Fox. And I proposed him the concept of a restaurant that would serve wonderful, delicious food that was also healthy. And he, his immediate reaction was health food doesn't sell. Um, I think he thought I meant tofu and sprouts. Uh, he regarded me as a hippie and um, he didn't see any possibilities for collaboration. I invited him and his wife to my home. I cooked a meal for them. They liked the food. His wheels began to turn and he said he would give it a try, but he was very skeptical that this would succeed. We opened our first true food kitchen in Phoenix uh, 11 years ago. It was a success right out of the gate. There are now 28 of these around the country. Um, people love them and I don't think we really have any comp competition. The menu is based on my anti-inflammatory diet. Um, and uh, there's something for everyone there. So you can go with a mixed group. There's, there, there are meat entrees, uh, although not many of them, but uh, wonderful produce, uh, fish, uh, gluten-free people can get what they want. People who are vegans or paleo can find what they want there. Uh, and it's been a great delight to see uh, people liking this food of the sort that I've enjoyed all my life or most of my life. Yeah, well, thank you for doing that. We certainly need more of that because it's one of the challenges that most of us have is that we, as you know, most of us eat far too much processed foods. And the, right. probably one of the easiest way to get that is when you're eating at a restaurant because you <laughs> at least have control at a home. In a restaurant, you don't. Yeah. And a large percentage of it is. But so we need that type of resource. So hopefully you catalyze a lot of competition. 
Yeah, I think, well, you know, I, when I became a, I was a lacto-vegetarian for a number of years before I started eating fish, and uh, it was really tough to find places to eat out, and that's a big change now. You know, many, many restaurants offer options, vegan, vegetarian options, and, uh, you know, things have improved enormously. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a key part, as you, as you know. Now, I guess I want to go back to exercise for a moment because you you're swimming and you're breathing and walking, and you know as you as you hit 80 or so, about 50% of the 80 year olds have sarcopenia. They've lost mm -hmm. a lot of their muscle mass, and mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you have found any strategies that you're personally adopted to prevent that from happening to you. Well, I use my muscles a lot. Uh, you know, I, I I'm careful in what I do, but I. Um, I go up and down stairs a lot when I get the chance. I lift things. Uh, I don't feel that I've lost uh, muscle strength. Uh, I, I certainly have some more aches and pains than I did when I was younger, but I think uh, my musculoskeletal system is in, is in good shape. Excellent. Do you, do you have a practitioner who practices cranial for you? Unfortunately, I don't have a great one here in Tucson, so I have to go elsewhere to find well, one. Like to Japan? <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, I know good practitioners in California and uh, Colorado, and they're around, and I encourage uh, young DOs that I meet to learn and, and get that technique because it's so valuable. Yeah, it's, it is. It's just very time-intensive, and you know, I think that's one of the problems with the, the whole... Traditional medical approach is that you are, and you you address this, and when you're on Joe's program, yeah. is that you don't have much time with the patient. It's just the economic incentives limit your time to about ten to fifteen minutes, and you know, or less. Yeah, or less. That's <laughs> a lot, ten or fifteen for some practice. You know what it is in Japan now? It's no, less, no. less than a minute. Oh my gosh! Seriously, <laughs> <laughs> seriously. <laughs> By the way, one. One thing I liked about Dr. Fulford, uh, I admired many things about him. It was so wonderful to have his hands on you. And when he treated someone, the a patient would often say, well, when should I come back? And he would say, you don't have to come back. You're fixed. I mean, how often do you hear <laughs> practitioners say that? Yeah, not many. Uh, and, you know, they've got, many of them have conflicts of interest, of course, that prevent mm -hmm. that from happening. But uh it's not a model that encourages it, but uh, I don't know how Fulford was able to get to that point, but you know, something we need, many of us need to aspire to. Right. By the way, the, you know, I think doctors today are so unhappy. I hear many, many doctors say they wish they hadn't gone into medicine. They'd never let a, a son or daughter of theirs go into medicine. I never heard anything like that when I was in college. Uh, medicine looked like a very desirable profession. You could be your own boss. You, you, know, you were highly regarded in society. And all that has changed. And uh, I think a lot of the satisfaction for physicians uh, derive from the therapeutic connection with a patient, you know, getting to know someone. You know, all that has evaporated uh, in this era of for-profit corporatized medicine. And it doesn't work. Yeah. Then do you think that the financial burden that many graduates now have coming out with quarter million dollars in debt or more leads to that? Or I, I can't imagine how, how that would be to have that. I have a, a colleague and friend who just turned 50 and he still hasn't paid off his uh, medical school debt. That's just terrible. Yeah. So it, it is a challenge. Uh, there's no question. And 
but how, how have your your graduates been doing? Have you, are you, do you see them making a difference? You know, we train these people really well, and then they're graduated and turned out in a world where everything is stacked against them. And the 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 main obstacle is that our priorities of reimbursement are totally backward. We happily pay for drugs, for uh, invasive procedures, for diagnostic testing. We don't pay a health professional to sit with a patient and talk to them about diet or teach them the breathing exercise. Uh, That has to change. And I think the only way it's going to change, well, some is that grassroots political action movement I mentioned, but I think we also need to to have data to show to the people who pay for health care that an integrative approach using natural therapies saves money and produces outcomes that are equal to or better than conventional medicine. Yes, indeed. So what, what are you most excited about for the future? Uh, well, you know, I really see integrative medicine as the way of the future. And I've always said that one day we'll be able to drop the word integrative and it'll just be good medicine. Uh, I really see that inevitably that's going to happen because uh, the, the forces that are taking down our healthcare system are continuing to build. We have an aging population. Uh, we have epidemics of lifestyle related disease that conventional medicine can't manage. We have uncontainable healthcare costs because of our dependence on expensive technology, of which pharmaceutical drugs are one part. Uh, this is happening all over the world, but it's most advanced in the U.S., and I, I think our healthcare system is farther over the cliff. And at the same time that we are paying more for, for healthcare than any other people in the world, we have worse health outcomes than anyone. I think the World Health Organization ranks us 38th on a par with Serbia. Uh, something is very wrong with that picture. It's unsustainable. Yes, indeed. So I want to go back to your earlier days when you were experimenting with uh, recreational drugs and cannabis. And uh, interestingly, have sort of morphed through that progression (laughs) and and, uh, don't use cannabis anymore. No, I haven't for many years. Yeah. And maybe you can share that story as to your initial experiences and why you reached your current state. Well, with cannabis, uh, when I started using that, it was in uh, probably end of medical school and then uh, especially in my 30s. At first, um, the highs I got from marijuana were a lot of fun. You know, it was like hilarity and uh, shared stuff with other people and uh, discovering the joy of various kinds of sensory experiences. Uh, After a couple of years, that changed. um, And when I used it, it, I became much more introspective. It stimulated my imagination, uh, helped me write. Uh, help the creative process and ideas. I think it was something that got me interested in meditation, which is uh, which has been a practice of mine for a long time now. But uh, several years after that, uh, the experiences began to change. I did not get those kind of good effects. Uh, it made me more sedated and groggy. Um, and when I decided that it wasn't doing me any good anymore, it took me quite a long time to separate myself from it. And now it really doesn't hold any interest for me. It's <laughs> remarkable to me. You know, all these things were early interests of mine when I was in my 20s, 30s, early 40s. And then that's been old work of mine, and I turned my attention to other things. And it's <laughs> it's very strange to me to watch all this becoming so mainstream in our country right now you know on mainstream television characters are microdosing with Mm -hmm. lsd and psilocybin uh 
there's an initiative to make uh, psilocybin mushrooms legal in Oregon. We're seeing recreational cannabis legalized all over. Uh, I, you know, it's a, it's a remarkable thing to watch this happening. So you're probably somewhat ambivalent about Trump uh, signing the farm <laughs> bill last year. <laughs> well, I am all for our our country finally embracing hemp. Uh, you know, I think we've been very stupid in our relationship with that plant. Um, cannabis sativa, um, the word sativa means useful. It's the useful hemp. Uh, and that plant is amazingly useful. It gives us an edible oil, very high quality oil, an edible seed, a medicine, uh, an intoxicant, a very high quality fiber. It's a lot of ways for one plant to serve us. and. Uh, we have let a multi-billion dollar industry in hemp textiles slip away to China, a multi-million dollar industry in edible hemp products go to Canada, and we have rejected uh, cannabis as medicine for a long time. So I'm very happy to see um, you know, this change. I, I, one of the things that I like to tell people is that uh, I think cannabis is the plant equivalent of the dog. Uh, dogs long ago through their evolutionary lot in with humans, they decided to co-evolve with us. And uh, cannabis has done the same thing. You can't, we can't unravel the ancient history of cannabis because as far back as we can look, it's always been associated with human settlements and human activity. It, it wants to do nothing other than to serve us. It lets us manipulate its genome and, um, you know, it just wants to help us and we have uh, turned it away. So it's nice to see that change. Well, I'm a bit surprised uh, at your position with, the, with those comments and uh, your interest in botany that you might not be actually juicing some, <laughs> some low THC hemp every day yeah. because it's a plant and there's nothing unnatural. It's a plant. I have nothing against it. It just doesn't, I don't resonate with it now. It doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And, and interestingly, I think, you know, as I say, it's changed over time. And I think it's good to pay attention to how your body changes and how it reacts to different things. Now, same with exercise. Uh, in my 20s, I ran for a time and then I got signals from my knees that they didn't like that and I shifted to cycling. I did that for a long time, and then I got into swimming, which agrees with me very much. I, I think it's good to be flexible, to change, and same in my reactions to plant medicines, to foods. Uh, as I said, for a while, I, I didn't eat fish, and then I changed that because uh, it was hard to travel not eating fish, and I began reading more and more about the health benefits of fish. So I, I think it's good to be flexible. Yeah, especially as you acquire new information. Yeah. So I wonder if you can share with us your experience with psychedelic uh, mm -hmm. substances and how you uh, have changed with respect to believing that they're useful and give this to these states, but that once you understand what those states are, you don't need those substances. I, I think the great uh, magic and potential of psychedelics is that they can show you possibilities that you otherwise would not have believed in. But once you're shown that, I think you then have to find other ways of maintaining those experiences. Because if you try to use the drug as the sole method of having them, it begins not to work for you. The example that I have written about and talked about, and you probably heard me say, when I was about 28, I was uh, decided I wanted to learn to practice yoga, Hatha yoga. And uh, so I worked with a number of postures. And the one that I had the most difficulty with was the plow, where you lie on your back and try to touch your toes behind your head on the floor. 
I worked at this for a long time and I got my toes to within a foot of the floor and I would have excruciating pain in my neck. And no matter how I persisted at that, I couldn't make further progress. Uh, one day, a, a beautiful spring day, I was with some friends in a wonderful outdoor setting. I took a dose of LSD, uh, felt terrific, and, and my body felt completely elastic and flexible. So I thought, I ought to try this. I, I lay down got my feet over my head and lowered them. And I thought I had about a foot to go and they touched the ground. I couldn't believe it. And I raised them, lowered them. I mean, it was a source of such delight. Uh, the next day I tried to do it and I got my toes within a foot of the floor and had horrible pain in my neck. But now there was a difference. I had seen that it was possible and I was motivated to keep at it. And in a few weeks I was able to do it. If I had not had that experience, I don't think I would have kept up the practice. So to me, that's a model of how these drugs can work. They can show you possibilities. And I think they have tremendous potential uh, in medicine as well. You know, everyone looks at their use in psychotherapy and that's all fine, but I think uh, they have a tremendous potential to change uh, how people conceive of their bodies and people who have chronic diseases to give them an experience that they can be without pain or without an aller allergic response. Uh, and then, as I say, having seen that, then it's up to you to figure out how to maintain that more of the time. So it's been nearly 50 years since that experience. I wonder if you're still doing the plow. <laughs> I do not do the plow anymore. Uh, actually, I don't practice yoga anymore. Uh, I, I, why? I, it's one of those things that changed for me, and I don't do that. I think I'm fairly flexible. Uh, as I said, swimming and movement in water is what agrees with me most now. Okay. So you probably still get that pain in the neck now. <laughs> <laughs> Only if I sit at the computer too long. No, no, I mean, if you're trying to plow. I, I, yeah, I haven't even tried it. I'm quite sure I wouldn't be able to do it. Okay, well, that's interesting. So now, did you, I think, didn't you connect with Timothy Leary when you were at Harvard? I knew him when I was an undergraduate, and uh, I had dealings with him you know, after I got out of uh, Harvard. He was a, a remarkable character, very charismatic, and uh, I think he had... He had no idea of the reaction that he would stimulate. He had an uncanny knack for saying things that push people's buttons um, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, like turn on, tune in, and drop out, for example. Um, and, you know, there are many, many of the early psychedelic researchers felt that he really uh, did the whole field a disservice um, and that all the notoriety around that uh, was one of the reasons that it became so hard to do research on psychedelics. Yeah, you did. You did research on. In other words, it's just the cannabis. No, I did the first uh, double-blind human experiments with cannabis that had ever been done. Um, that was published in 1968 uh, in Science. I never, I have not done any formal research with psychedelics. Okay, interesting. All right. So, uh, what's what's on your plan for the? the near future you're not going to write any books but you're going to write uh, i'm writing my story collection of stories collection of stories uh from all ages and some of them are quite funny some of them are very serious um but i'm having i'm enjoying doing that uh i'm still the director of the university of arizona arizona center for integrative medicine uh we are about to 
enter a new phase of our growth. Um, the university has really made a solid commitment to uh, make integrative medicine a top priority. Um, we're getting a building on campus. We are uh, going to open early next year uh, the first integrative medicine primary care clinic. Uh, it'll be in Tucson, and we think we have a model that is replicable, sustainable, profitable, that can be eventually replicated uh, throughout the healthcare system here and elsewhere. Uh, we're expanding our teaching programs. We have a very strong research center as well. So uh, that, that to me is like uh, very, very exciting and something that I've waited for for a long time. Well, that's excellent. That is just really wonderful. Well, um, I really want to thank you for all you've done for the field and really a been a magnificent catalyst for so many of us to uh, really explore these areas. Well, I admire you as well. I have many, many friends who are very enthusiastic followers of your work, and I learn a lot of things from your site as well. Excellent. Actually, there's, you know, one of the, one of the uh, points I wanted to mention is that it, towards the end of the interview with Joe, you talked about your experiences with fasting, and that was just a few weeks ago, and you were mentioning that you were exploring intermittent fasting and i've written a book that's coming out on april 30th called keto fasting which uh -huh. really integrates the best of both worlds with respect to intermittent fasting and the partial fasting not necessarily the multi-day water yeah. fast because when i wrote the book initially i was going to focus primarily on long day water fasting, water fasting but then i learned that it's probably not a good idea in the 20th 21st century because of all these fat-soluble toxins. And, and you uh -huh. can probably get most of the benefits with a partial fast, which is much easier to do. Compliance goes through the roof and gets so many other benefits. So if you're interested, I could send you a copy of that. I'd love to, I'd love to see that. You know, with long-term water fasting, what's fascinating is that there are many reports of complete remission of autoimmune diseases, especially asthma, ulcerative colitis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, dramatic remissions but uh, typically the disease comes back when people start to eat again and the problem is how do you transition them off and there's some people have experimented with uh, starting people on a vegan diet then going to a vegetarian diet and see if you can maintain that improvement but the fact that you can get that kind of remission uh, is fascinating and to find a way of doing it that's not as burdensome and not as difficult uh, would Well, I, I don't know that the partial fasting I'm describing would do that But I, I think uh, in the autoimmune cases. I'm not sure if you've read Stephen Gundry's work the plant paradox I have not. Oh, it's something I would strongly encourage you to do because it, I didn't really understand that these lectins which are proteins that the plants produce as self-defense right. mechanisms in many healthy plants, and there's a large numbers of healthy vegan or veg vegan type uh, plants that are full of these lectins that yeah. may, in many people, because of their genetics, stimulate these autoimmune uh -huh. reactions. So uh -huh. restricting those specific foods, and Gundry has an entire list in his book, and it's even online, you can look up the list, eliminating those, he's had tremendous success with treating autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that for my sense is the trick with intermittent fasting is to experiment to find a way that works for you, because I think there's a lot of individual variation in response to that. Yeah, yeah. I've, the, the, the theme, though, seems to be limiting your, your food for at least three hours before bedtime, which yes, can become right. a, a massive social challenge for mm -hmm. many families mm -hmm. because they get home from work and it's seven o'clock and they're going to go to bed at nine or ten. And it's what do you do? Yep. You're rocking a hard place. But well, uh, I'd love to read. I'd love to read what you write on that. Well, perfect. All right. I will send you a copy. But um, 
anything else you'd like to share with us? No, I think, uh, I think the future is going to be very bright for our field because, um, you know, as I said, my experience is that uh, medicine doesn't change as a result of intellectual argument. It changes as a result of economic necessity. And uh, we are in deep, deep trouble uh, with our healthcare system. And I think uh, what you and I have been advocating for so long, the wisdom of that has become, will become more and more apparent as the healthcare crisis deepens. Well, thank you so much.